Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, I'm Anne McElvoy, Head of Economist Radio, and you're listening to a special programme on the result of the EU referendum. The total number of votes cast in favour of leave was 17 million... 410,742. This will be a victory for real people, a victory for ordinary people, a victory for decent people. We should aim to have a new Prime Minister in place by the start of the Conservative Party conference in October. As the dust settles on last night's historic vote and the Prime Minister David Cameron announces his resignation, we'll be asking where next for the UK and for the European Union. Well, I think there will be genuine sadness across um, the European Union, particularly in Berlin, but there'll also be a bit of anger. And we'll also be asking where it went wrong for Remain and hearing the view from Brussels. But first, The Economist's deputy editor, Edward Carr, is here to give us his reaction to the vote, as is our Buttonwood columnist, Philip Coggan. So, Ed, it's Brexit, and did you see it coming? I was wavering, and towards the end, I thought actually Remain would win. So I think today's a sad day, um, and just how sad depends on what kind of Brexit we get. And why do you think it happened? I know this is all still very raw, but if you were to look at your coverage and what you've been able to pull out in a very short amount of time. What do you think the big factors are? For me, the, the revelation on the night was the fact that I, I put a lot of weight on the fact the economy would perform better if we remained in Europe. But it seemed to me that there was a, a large vote of people for whom they didn't really feel the economy was working for them in any case, in or out. Uh, and for them, the satisfaction of being able to protest this sense of um, control, they don't feel they've got control, they don't feel that things are working for them. That was a factor I think I didn't, I didn't see coming. Philip Coggan, you look at financial markets and their reactions. How significant is this volatile market reaction that we've been seeing today on Friday? Well, I think it is very significant. We've seen one of the biggest moves in the pound since the pound floated in 1971, and we've seen the pound fall to a 30-year low. It's up a bit from that low, but it's still a huge move in historic terms. And again, the markets had moved to anticipate a remain vote uh, right up until the polls closed at 10 o'clock. They were looking more and more confident. Uh, and then suddenly, as the results started to come in, everything switched. So it's a big shock. It's rippled not just in terms of the pound, but in terms of share markets around the globe, bond markets around the globe, gold up, oil down, almost everything's affected. I suppose one might say, well, this is another example of the markets, like many other institutions, not seeing this coming. How much of it is a correction to that? And how much of it tells us something perhaps deeper and a bit more worrying? The market's been moving up and down with each opinion poll move in the course of the campaign. So I think they did expect at some points an adverse impact. They just had been hoodwinked by 
the late move in the polls, which they believed a status quo bias would operate in favour of Remain. But it's a rational assumption on the part of investors that the British economy will grow more slowly, hence the fall in the equity markets and the fall in bond yields, that the Bank of England may need to cut rates soon, and that the uncertainty this will create across the world economy may affect economic activity, may stop the Fed from raising rates in the short term. You know, it's just so many effects. We've seen the yen uh, shoot up as a safe haven currency, and the Japanese stock market has actually fallen a lot more than the UK stock market at the moment. So this is one of those genuine shocks that occurs only ever so often in markets. And I think the ramifications of it will take months, even years, rather than just one day to play out. That's interesting, Ed Carr, because it makes it sound like a bit of a global earthquake off the back of this in the markets. Two possible views. One is, well, this is going to settle down pretty quickly. The other is that such a long period of uncertainty now lies ahead. How do you look at the next couple of months or the two or three months where we've still got the same Prime Minister, David Cameron, but effectively it's in the grip of leave? Well, in the UK, of course, there's immense uncertainty. Uncertainty at almost every level, both how this plays out, which kind of Brexit they go for, a maximalist Brexit or one that that still gives Britain quite a lot of access to the single market. There's uncertainty about how European countries respond. There's uncertainty about who will be prime ministers. There's uncertainty at every level. But I think there's one other factor that we need to think about here. Do we think of this as, if you like, the first of of many such events. In other words, this raises the probability of similar events in Europe. So this is the beginning of instability and a sign... More referendums. Referendums or not, but a a sign that this kind of disruptive force, this dissatisfaction with globalisation has got a long way to run. So is this this the first infection of many or is it an inoculation? Is this something that changes people's behaviour? Abroad, people, politicians see that this is a risk. They respond accordingly. And in fact, this stands out as the moment when the world started to take these kind of events really seriously. Philip, just before you go, because I, I know you have to, to dash off and everyone is still producing at The Economist. But is there a risk to London as a financial centre? A very senior cabinet minister said to me today, he thought much else might be OK, but he was very worried about the impact on the city of London. Are you? I think there's some risks. Certainly the clearing of euro um, transactions might well move to Europe. Uh, Firms will have to move some of their business into the EU to be uh, qualify under the passporting rules. And we've already heard beforehand that um, HSBC, Morgan Stanley, JP Morgan are all um, thinking of moving some staff. Do I think it's the end of London as financial centre? No. Uh, London still has a significant advantage in terms of just the weight of institutional history, then there aren't really any other centres that are uh, uh, around to challenge it. I don't think everybody's going to be moving to Paris or Frankfurt. But still, at the margin, losing that kind of business is another factor that will weigh on uh, the UK economy. And the fact that uh, the Bank of England has had to step in and say there's lots of money uh, put aside to help banks if uh, they struggle, and the fact that bank shares have taken a hit all across Europe indicates that investors are worried about the impact. Thank you, Philip Coggan, our Buttonwood columnist, and thank you too to Ed, who is going to stay with us. Now, first thing this morning, I was at Westminster on a sun-kissed college green where the media and politicians gather on occasions like this. 
in the early light on College Green here, helicopters overhead and some tooting lorries going past. And with David Davis, who's been a prominent campaigner for Brexit and spoke to The Economist before the referendum. So, David, better results than you might have predicted? As it turns out, exactly the result I predicted six weeks ago, and it may be even in our previous interview. So I wasn't surprised by it, but I was pleased by it. And what do you think will happen next? David Cameron is about to speak. There seems to be an attempt to shore up his leadership and say that he should stay. Is that really possible? He called this referendum. He's lost it. There does seem to be an argument for the Prime Minister getting off the stage. Well, he called the referendum uh, as to whether we should be in or out of the European Union, not a referendum whether he or should or should not be Prime Minister. Uh, so very complicated negotiations, preparations lasting six months to 12 months, then two years of negotiations thereafter. Frankly, if I were running those negotiations, I'd want stability at home whilst, whilst we carried on negotiations abroad. That, and, and a typical Tory party leadership contest takes nine months of instability. What are you going to bet me that David Cameron is still in office in three months' time? Well, since I made a thousand quid yesterday on this outcome, I'll probably bet you a tenner. A tenner, <laughs> a, a very, very generous offer there. David Davis will be back to you in three months. Thank you. Looks like I might just lose out on winning that tenner because within half an hour, the Prime Minister had emerged from number 10 to announce his resignation. I think the country requires fresh leadership to take it in this direction. In my view, we should aim to have a new Prime Minister in place by the start of the Conservative Party conference in October. I was just watching you on the green, Ian Duncan Smith, with your headphones on, hearing the news that the Prime Minister's to step down within the next three months. Inevitable? Well, I suppose you can say it's inevitable. I'm sorry about that because I had hoped that he would decide to stay on and that we would uh, work together to try and find the right way forward for Britain uh, to decide how best to go about the negotiations and what elements of change needed to happen domestically. Uh, that all has to happen, but he's chosen now not to be the leader of that. I think it's very important in the meantime that he acts to stabilise uh, the situation to make sure that uh, everyone recognises that the British government, the bank and everything else will act uh, accordingly to make sure that the British economy continues and all the changes that have been made continue as well so that great stability uh, carries on. The two big leaders on the Conservative side for Remain were of course David Cameron but also George Osborne. Do you think he'll follow, the Chancellor will follow Prime Minister in stepping down? That is almost impossible to say. You'll have to speculate on that with him or without him. But I can simply say that uh, just having heard the news, the Prime Minister decided to step down. I think that changes uh, the game across the board. I think the reality is our first and foremost priority is for there to be a clear statement very soon uh, after negotiations and discussions with colleagues about the best way forward, both not just in this leadership process, but more importantly, apart from leadership, because that is a secondary issue, more importantly, the way forward that we perceive the, the negotiations and discussions uh, externally with the European Union, and more importantly, what internal legislation needs to be brought forward and how that will be done. Uh, and there's also elements around the negotiations, and I think without question, our relationship with Europe and our independence uh, will have to be settled, I believe, by a cross-party process. I believe there needs to be in that negotiating group and team uh, elements uh, of the Labour Party, elements of the Conservative Party, uh, and other business and uh, legal interests as well. So there needs to be a coming together of talents, but not just from the Conservative Party. The Cabinet itself uh, is a different matter, and that's a matter now for the Prime Minister to decide upon as to what he changes he makes, if he makes any, uh, and then we'll see what happens in the course of the leadership. Bring back Boris. Well, it looks like that the Prime Minister's uh, announcement uh, automatically forces a 
challenge to Boris Johnson to decide what he wants to do as much as others as well. But having been there in that position, all I can say is good luck to them. <laughs> Indeed, you, you, you have. And I, I remember covering that and the ups and downs of that. But what should Boris Johnson do? Go for the job and would you support him? Well, I, I'm, you know, I've never made a position about leadership and I haven't even thought about it, to be quite frank with you. But obviously that's clearly a decision for Boris Johnson uh, and for everybody else too who may have thought about this. But it's secondary. I just want to stress this is the most irrelevant issue of the relevant issues that exist. The most relevant issue is stabilising the economy and getting us on an even keel for those negotiations. Some people will say you help destabilise the economy. The markets are in free fall. The pound is under great pressure as we speak. This morning the credit rating of UK PLC looks threatened. Have you unleashed chaos? No, I think democracy is in itself uh, likely to cause markets to do all sorts of strange things. Of course, you know, it can be said the markets deliberately rather bet on a decision and a view as to what would actually happen and have been found wanting in that. Uh, uh, what you'll normally find is the classic case, which is, you know, you essentially buy on a rumour and sell on a fact, and that's what's going on at the moment. That will stabilise, I have no doubt about that. Sterling, the pound will recover. pound will recover because it's very cheap at the moment. At some point, someone's going to step in and say, it's time to buy it back. And that will ha stabilise over the next few days, I'm sure. So the longer-term effects need to focus on the negotiation process. Thank you very much. Ian Duncan Smith. So it was only a half an hour after David Cameron announced that he'd step down in the next three months and a new Conservative leader will be in place by the party conference in September. I'm going round the corner now to see Philip Hammond, the Foreign Secretary. He's played a leading role in the negotiations. He's been a staunch supporter of David Cameron on the Remain side. And I want to know what he thinks should happen next, both at the top of the Conservative Party but even more importantly, to those negotiations on how Britain leaves the EU. Philip Hammond, we've come to see you. It's not even an hour since David Cameron announced that he will step down within the next three months. A new leader will be in place in September. What's your reaction to that? Well, I listened very carefully to what the Prime Minister said. I didn't know that he was going to say that, but he will obviously have thought very carefully this morning about it. And I think... Having listened to the rationale that he's presented, he's right that because there will have to be very significant trade-offs, very significant decisions made about how we shape our relationship with the European Union, it would frankly be very difficult for him to carry out that negotiation and for him to make those trade-offs, having been the leader of the campaign to remain. It's probably right that a government that more reflects the outcome of the vote is making those decisions, some of which will be extremely difficult, but that will be a job for the next Prime Minister. That would presumably also apply to the Chancellor, George Osborne, who's been just as prominent, if not more so, in the debate. Well, I think we're, you know, we're all in a, in, in a limbo now where we will be, over the next three months, making the decisions that need to be made, but not making discretionary decisions, not moving uh, forward with any formal discussions with European Union partners, although I'm sure we'll have plenty of informal discussions about uh, what their thinking is. And then it will be for a new prime minister to make decisions about who he wants in his government, how he wants to shape it, or she wants to shape it, and how they take it forward. What's it feel like to be in limbo? Uh, uncomfortable. Um, I have to say this morning reminds me uh, very much of the feeling after the general election in 2010, before the coalition uh, was formed when we were kind of sitting there staring at the sky wondering 
you know, what kind of government was going to emerge, who was going to play what kind of role in it. I think uh, there will be a lot of people wondering how this is going to play out. One thing this morning that I am very pleased about on reflection is that the Prime Minister has said Article 50 will not be triggered until the new Prime Minister is in office. I do think that gives us a very, very valuable pause. When the dust can settle, calmer views can prevail, the sort of exuberance of the campaign can give way to the more measured and thoughtful approach that I know you know, all of my colleagues, including all of those on the Brexit side, uh, are capable of. And I hope that uh, they will maintain control of the debate on the exit side and not allow Nigel Farage and, and, and his ilk to hijack uh, their agenda. Some would say it's Nigel Farage's day. Well, look, he's always been the man who makes the most noise. Um, we've got used to that in British politics. But the serious uh, thinkers around this are the conservative politicians who've been played such a prominent role in the Brexit campaign. And I hope that they will lead the next phase of this debate because I think they will um, uh, be calm and wise heads in deciding how to move forward in the way that uh, maximises the chance of a good outcome for Britain. Prospect of Boris Johnson, Prime Minister, send your blood pressure up? Uh, no, it doesn't send my blood pressure up. I mean, I think... Uh, Boris is one of the big beasts in the Conservative Party. He clearly will be um, one of the leading contenders. But I've, I've always suspected that once the starting gun was fired, we will see some uh, uh, politicians who are perhaps not so well known to the public at the moment emerging into the uh, battle. And um, who knows how it will end up. Uh, remember when David Cameron became Conservative Party leader in 2005. Um, at the beginning of the campaign, he didn't look like the front uh, runner, but he came through during the course of the campaign. What do you think the reaction will now be from our European partners? I know you've been intensely involved in the renegotiations. What will happen now? Well, the reaction from the political elites in Europe will be to close ranks, to try to reset the European project and set out a new direction for their future without Britain and for some of them it will be without the constraint of Britain uh, which has constantly been a backmarker on many of the agendas that some of them wanted to pursue. There will of course be a group of European countries, the group that has looked to Britain for leadership in liberalising the EU, in focusing on uh, free markets and uh, foreign trade. They will be disappointed, deeply disappointed by Britain's decision to leave the European Union. But of course there's a separate reaction, which is the reaction of ordinary people across Europe. And you know, I can't speak for the electorate in every country in Europe, but I have a strong sense that the mood that is being conveyed by the result here is not a uniquely British mood. I think it will resonate across quite a lot of Europe. I think it will resonate across quite a lot of the United States. And I think the consequences of that are unknown and unknowable at the moment, but I don't think that the political elites in Europe will necessarily have it all their own way in setting the next stage of the agenda. And the Foreign Secretary is, of course, part of the political elite, rather high up in the political elites. Did you get it wrong? Have you misunderstood what the British people want when it comes to the EU? I think we've, we've always understood a malaise among the British electorate, indeed, I'd say that I've shared that malaise about some of the direction of the European Union, some of the tone of the European Union. 
what I firmly believe is that the deal that we negotiated in February, together with the political changes that are happening in Europe that I've just referred to, the, the, the change of mood among the electorates and, and therefore political parties in Europe, meant that if we'd stayed in, we would have been able to see a better future, a, a more sensible uh, direction for the European Union in the future. But look, that's spilt milk. Uh, the decision is made, um, Britain is leaving, and the key question now is how we can get the best possible future for Britain in resetting our relationship with the European Union. Does that mean that you don't see what some people are talking about, another round of renegotiation, and perhaps next time a better deal for Britain, something like a temporary stop on immigration, which would satisfy at least some who have voted for Brexit? Is that not a possibility? We've we voted to leave the European Union, and I take it that what we will now do, uh, or what the new Prime Minister will do when he's in office, is negotiate with the European Union for a new arrangement between Britain and the European Union. And I, Now, I hope that that will be an arrangement that includes a high degree of access to the single market for British businesses, because I believe that would be very good for Britain. The price of that, I'm very sure, will be uh, the continuation of free movement of labour between Britain and the European Union. No temporary stop is at all thinkable, even though, of course, it happened before. We had one around 2004 when it came to Poland. We chose not to use it, but we had it. Well, that was in the case of a new accession um, member. I don't think it will be possible to negotiate a temporary stop on European migration into the UK while maintaining access to the single market. Now, now of course, it will be for the new Prime Minister to decide what the trade-offs are, how much access to the single market are we prepared to trade in exchange for some restriction on freedom of movement. But I very much hope that there is a negotiation that starts from the premise that it is good for Britain and good for Britain's economy to have as much access to the single market um, as possible. I think that will be the way to do it which minimises the damage to Britain's economy. Some people saying this morning the damage to the markets has already happened, credit rating mm. is under threat, other things that consumers might start to notice, possible rises in petrol prices. Do you think we're in for a period of extreme economic turbulence? Well, look, let's distinguish the short term from the medium term from the long term. In the short term, the markets called it wrong, and therefore there is a massive correction going on in the markets today. That will settle down over the next few days, it always does. In the medium term, the markets will face a period of uncertainty about the conditions that will face the real economy in the longer term, whether British companies will continue to be able to pursue the trading relationships that they've had for the last 40 years in the European Union or not. And that will create uncertainty. What that does in, you know, in practical terms is it raises the rate of return required by investors in Britain because the risk they face is bigger and, and, and that's a problem for us in the medium term. And in the long term, it depends on what settlement we negotiate with um, the European Union. What's the view from Berlin as you understand it? Have you heard from Berlin? I know you've had particularly close links there. You have close relationships there. Um, are you finding people on, weeping down the phone at you? And what's your response to how Britain now goes about rebuilding diplomatically, let alone when we get into talking about what the actual deal is under a new prime minister? Well, I think there will be um, 
genuine sadness across um, the European Union, particularly in Berlin. But there'll also be a bit of anger as well. I mean, uh, viewed from the point of view of European politicians, many of them think they are dealing with a very big problem in terms of the challenge of migration from the Middle East into Europe, a very big problem which actually isn't a problem that Britain has suffered from because we're not in the Schengen area. And this presents them with yet another challenge uh, on top. So I think there will be a, a, a bit of a measure of anger. But look, most politicians in Europe will spend about 15 minutes worrying about Britain, and then they will start worrying about the impact on their own political futures. Germany has a, a general election next year. France has a presidential election. Within hours, uh, the focus of the political elites in both countries is going to be, what does this mean for us? What does this mean for the party political struggle in our own country? What does it mean for the futures of our own uh, political leaders? And I think we have to be realistic about the fact that most of the negotiation that Britain has to do with these countries will be done under the shadow of their own political debates. And they will not be thinking primarily about how they can help Britain. They will be thinking about how they can manage their own domestic political situation. That's always been my fear uh, about the deliverability of what some have argued will be an easy negotiation that gets a good deal for Britain. I'm not so sure we'll be able to do that very easily. Philip Hammond, thank you very much. Edward Carr, our deputy editor, is still with me listening to that. So, Ed, do you think Philip Hammond is correct in the way that he framed the options on negotiations from here? I, I think he's absolutely right about what is in the UK's best interest. But I think he missed out one crucial point, uh, and that is that voters have been told they can have both a fantastic economy and to stop the free movement of people and control immigration. And what he's really saying is that you have to choose one or the other. And he said which one you should choose. You should choose the uh, the access to the single market. He's quite clear on that, wasn't he? I, I think he's right on that. But he didn't. He glossed over the second problem, which is then how you sell this to an electorate. And, and I think that's a difficult task because whoever does will be accused of breaking their word, of letting people down because they will be letting people down. And I think that's the really difficult thing. And it depends a lot on the identity and political skills of the next prime minister. And we don't know who that is. Close to the top of the Conservative Party, I think there are quite a lot of people who are saying today, if only we'd got a better deal on immigration, if we'd got even a temporary stop, this is not unheard of. It's been around before. Various countries have used it. We might not be in this terrible pickle. Philip Hammond slightly dismissed that with me. But is there some truth in that? As open as we would want to be, the economist is very liberal on immigration, but clearly it played a role here. I slightly differ from Philip Hammond on this. I think I could imagine circumstances in which the principle of freedom of movement is preserved, but there are certain sort of safeguards built in that are, that are cosmetic, actually. What but, would they but, be like? So surges in immigration allow certain controls. Now, this would be a very, very hard thing to sell uh, in Europe, where countries such as Poland put a huge price on the free access uh, and free movement to people. So I don't think it'd be easy. I'm not even certain it's, it's available. What I am saying is that I, I could imagine some sort of squaring of circles in, in an area like but it would be only symbolic and only cosmetic. Essentially, the choice is between access to the market 
and the freedom of people because the one thing that the EU can't do is weaken the European Union any further. And you do that when you start eroding the fundamental building blocks um, of, of the EU. But I think one of the questions is, and actually this is something for you, Anna, someone who's written about politics for more than is good for you, um, is, is what will the response of Labour and Labour voters be to this kind of stopping the free movement of people or not stopping the free movement of people and access and not access? Where will their preferences lie? Well, that's going to be very interesting, I think, because we know that around a third of Labour voters didn't follow the lead from Jeremy Corbyn at the top of the party. He's a somewhat reluctant convert to the European Union, but he did go out there and he did say that he, he wanted people to vote Remain. And a lot of that core vote, exactly the working class voters that we were talking about feeling very dissatisfied, I think are still there. And this is increasingly a problem for Labour. I do think, though, also, Ed, in the short term, Jeremy Corbyn is going to have a problem. He's clearly not in the position of David Cameron having to announce an immediate resignation, but there are no confidence motions going around at Westminster. They need a certain number of signatories, but we know that he skates on pretty thin ice with the, his parliamentary party. So I wouldn't be at all surprised if we found that uh, two leaders were under threat in the next couple of days. However, he might say to David Cameron, you broke it, you owned it. And what about, just one other thing, what about the Tory leadership? Because the identity of whether it's a Brexiteer or a non-Brexiteer, whether it's someone with real political skills or not, who, who, will, who will get that, do you think? Boris Johnson, no question I'll buy you a big glass of expensive French wine if I'm wrong. Boris Johnson has played his cards very well here. He's a canny political operator. He knows that he went out on a limb. He took a risk. But you have to say, even if you're not on the leave side, it's paid off. Uh, Michael Gove, the other prominent intellectual Brexiteer from the old cabinet, I think doesn't want to run, doesn't see himself as a leader, sees himself in another role, possibly Philip Hammond's role as, as a future foreign secretary. So I think the ground is open there for Boris Johnson. And not Theresa May? Theresa May will say that she has behaved extremely well. She has uh, she kept on the Remain side, although she probably didn't really want to. I think it is just genuinely hard to see a Remainer getting anywhere near the top of this government. Nigel Farage said this morning he expected a Brexit government. Even if you don't go the full way with UKIP, I think it's going to look a lot more like that than a government of reluctant Remainers. Now, it's fair to say that the UK's decision to leave the EU has caused a certain amount of consternation in Brussels. Tom Nuttall is our Charlemagne columnist based there, and he's on the line now. Tom, what is the mood today around you? This is an earthquake. People didn't expect this. People were optimistic. There's a sort of syllogism that people follow here. Uh, Brexit was an absurd idea. Absurd ideas don't happen, therefore no Brexit. Now, we've seen how wrong that can be. Um, there's been an uh, immediate response from senior European Union officials, um, including the president of the European Commission. And, and that had two elements, essentially. First of all, they said, we regret the decision, but we respect it. And we now expect the United Kingdom to advance its withdrawal as quickly as possible. And this means invoking something called Article 50, which is a formal mechanism by which you withdraw from the European Union. The second thing that leaders are going to have to think about is how they manage potential insurgencies within their own countries. And here I'm talking about heads of government. Politicians like Marine Le Pen in France, Geert Wilders in the Netherlands, wasted no time at all after the result was announced this morning in calling for similar referendums in their own countries. Um, so this is going to be a difficult line for leaders uh, 
um, of these countries to, to tread, um, particularly France and Germany, which are facing elections in the next year. It's interesting that you cite Article 50 there and the impression that we're getting from British government sources is they want to go rather slowly on that. Why would the EU at this point want to race ahead? Why not take pause, leave it for the next prime minister, conservative prime minister to take on? I suspect that there is actually potential for a bust up here. Leading members of the European Parliament in particular have been very clear this morning that they're not prepared to wait several months um, for a Conservative leadership contest and a new Prime Minister for Britain to invoke Article 50. They're worried that if you leave it, if you leave all of this time, then the project frays further, um, you create more space for the populace to cause trouble, and you create an atmosphere of uncertainty, which is exactly what everybody doesn't want now. They want clarity, certainty, and they want to know how things are going to proceed and they want to have that as quickly as possible. So next week, when there's a European summit on Tuesday and Wednesday, I think you can expect David Cameron to get a rather hard time about this Article 50 business. Interesting. Ed Carr, here's your hat. What's your hurry? Is that the way you think the EU will handle this? It's hard to know who can, you know, how they can force Cameron to go faster. You know, he, he, it's up to him when he invokes it. He doesn't even have to go to Parliament, but it's it's up to him. And, and he's been very clear that he thinks it's the responsibility of the next prime minister, Indeed. not him, to do so. And that that the selection of the next prime minister takes some time. Tom, do you want to come back on that? Yeah, I mean, Ed is absolutely right. There, uh, There's nothing that anyone can do. In fact, I've just been speaking to uh, an official in the European Commission who made that absolutely clear. There is no legal way for anyone to force David Cameron's hand or, who, or, or any representative of the British government's hand to invoke Article 50. In legal terms, absolutely nothing has happened at all, as far as this place is concerned, until they receive official notification of this referendum result. That said, they can put a lot of political pressure on the Prime Minister to get things moving. And of course, there is at some point, there is going to have to be a very hard-fought negotiation over the terms of whatever sort of trade deal uh, and single market access deal is going to replace Britain's membership. And so it will be in the interest of the British government to keep the rest of the European Union as sweet as possible to ensure that those negotiations, which are going to be very difficult, run as smoothly as possible. I like the idea that nothing has happened until legal notification comes along. Tom Nuttall in Brussels, thank you very much. Ed, it's interesting there that, that Tom was speculating on whether there might be more pushes for referendums in perhaps in, in France, but there is also a possibility of it happening closer to home in Scotland again. What do you make of that? Well, yes, uh, Nicola Sturgeon this morning was very quick to put that on the table as, as a warning, I think, to London and to the next Prime Minister that Scottish interests need to be observed. Whether she follows through with that... Uh, is a different question. Uh, whether she can feel confident, even under these circumstances, of winning a referendum is a question. And, and I think having done one so recently, having held a referendum so recently, she has to be totally confident of victory before she actually goes for it. This Does is she have to go into the Eurozone then to do that? If Scotland breaks away from the United Kingdom, joins the EU, it has to join the Euro. Mm. Frying pan not, fire. A, not immediately, but it has to make a commitment at some point in the future to join the euro. And that will, of course, not be popular. And before we go then, Ed, what do you think we've learnt from this? What's the takeaway? For me, it's, it's a, the long fuse after the financial crisis, which reduced confidence in elites across the world. And this has fed back into politics and its consequences have lasted far longer than I thought they were going to. 
I guess I should ask you exactly the same question, Anne. What, what for you is it? I put the fuse a long way further back. I put it back into the early 90s. We watched the government then of John Major being torn apart on the European question. And I think we all failed to realise, if you take that big arc from 1989, fall of the Berlin Wall, how much Europe was going to change and how much the reaction was going to be very difficult to contain. And I think we've just seen that in spectacularly explosive form this week in Britain. Ed Carr, thank you very much. That's it for this special podcast from Economist Radio. Let us know what you think of this extraordinary moment in British and European history by tweeting us at Economist Radio. And, of course, you can follow all our coverage at economist.com. Goodbye. (laughs) 